Mark chapter 16, let's look at verse 4. We're told that they, this is Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, a group of women, they looked up. They saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. But the angel said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He is risen. He is not here. See, the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he said to you. The angel in the garden tomb had basically a twofold message for this group of women. First, probably the, the greatest few words ever recorded in history. He is risen. Jesus has been resurrected to life. You've come, you're seeking him. You think he's dead, but he's not. You think he's here, he's left. He's risen indeed that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. The second message that the angel provided is that they needed to now take the news of the resurrection to the disciples because Jesus desired to meet with them. Now, as we noted last week, and it's important for maybe us to establish a little context for those that weren't here, as we talked about in, in great details last Sunday, between the two instructions, Jesus has risen and go and tell other people, the angel does something that's very important, significant. The angel invites these women to see for themselves that Jesus had indeed been resurrected from the dead before they went and told others. The order is important. The claim, Jesus has risen. He's been resurrected from the dead is then followed by an invitation to see, to examine, to check out the evidence of the claim for yourself before there's the expectation that you go into the world and tell other people. In essence, you need to be convinced of the claim before you can effectively tell anyone else. And that's only logical. Now this morning, I want to start with a question, a relevant question, a question that I think many Christians don't necessarily contemplate but in our culture, we kind of subtly accept. And that's the notion that if the resurrection didn't happen, does it even matter? Like really, I mean, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if he wasn't resurrected, does that hurt our faith? Does that discredit his claims? Does that make him any less of a man that he was? Does that mean that if he didn't rise from the dead, that we shouldn't be Christians, that we shouldn't go to church, that we shouldn't read the Bible? I mean, if the resurrection didn't happen, to, should we even care? I mean, what does it mean to us? In 2001, there was a movie titled The Body. It starred Antonio Banderas. And the, the movie explored the potential ramifications that discovering the body of Jesus would have on the Catholic Church as well as Christianity as a whole. Banderas plays the character of a Catholic priest named Father Gutierrez, who had been assigned by the Vatican to investigate an archaeological claim that they had actually discovered what they thought to be the body of Jesus. Father Gutierrez, his whole point of going, he's been sent by the Vatican, he's to examine the claim, he's to try to discredit the claim, 
He's to prove that the bones are not that of Jesus. But as more and more evidence throughout the movie mounts to support the claim that they had indeed discovered the body of Jesus, his faith begins to waver. Now, by the end of the movie, Father Gutierrez has come to a stark realization that it is now not the Catholic Church that he's actually protecting. Like, he's supposed to be protecting the Christian faith. And in the end, he decides that he's going to reject the Catholic Church, but he's going to remain true to Jesus. He actually concludes at the end of the movie, he said this, I thought I had lost my faith in Christ, in God, my Savior, my friend, but I didn't. I've lost my faith in serving men who use God to justify their material agendas. That's why I now choose to serve God in my own personal way, even if Jesus never rose from the dead. But from my estimation, that's garbage. I mean, I, I hate to, to be the bearer of bad news or, or to in some ways cause you to have less of a perspective of your pastor, but if Jesus is dead and that's proved, peace, I'm out of here. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. This is a waste of my time, a waste of your time. This book, to me, is garbage. If Jesus is dead and they can prove that it's his body, then I'm out. As a matter of fact, now I have all the justification in the world to do everything else that I haven't been doing because I claim to follow Jesus. I'd be a horrible person without Jesus. You see, here's the deal. If the resurrection didn't happen, if Jesus is still dead, then it's significant for Christians because the reality is without the resurrection, there is no Christian faith. Theologian Gerald O'Collins said it this way, Christianity without the resurrection is not simply Christianity without its final chapter. It's, Christi it's not Christianity at all. Pastor and author John MacArthur said it a little more bluntly. He said the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of the world. It's so fundamental to Christianity that no one who denies it can actually be a true Christian. Consider for a moment the implications if we discovered Jesus' body. If Jesus never rose from the dead, consider what that would mean for us if it were nothing more than a falsehood. First, Jesus is a total liar. He's lied to you, he's lied to me, he's lied to the world. He's lied to everybody. He's a liar. Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield, he said, Christ himself deliberately staked his whole claim to the credit of men upon his resurrection. When asked for a sign, the Pharisees asked for a sign, he pointed to the resurrection as his single and most significant credential. See, without the resurrection, Jesus would be a liar because he over and over and over again made the claim that he would go to Jerusalem, die in three days, be resurrected from the dead. So he's a false prophet at the least. Secondly, Jesus wouldn't be God if he's still dead. It's kind of like this philosophical explosion in your brain to consider that God is dead. Like, wait a second, that doesn't work. It's been said that the empty tomb as an enduring symbol of the resurrection is the ultimate representation of Jesus' claim to be God. Without the resurrection, Jesus is not only a liar, but he's not God. C.S. Lewis 
took it a step further in his book, Mere Christianity, when he wrote, it's a long quote, let me read it for you. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he didn't intend to. It seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that Jesus was and is God. So first, if the resurrection didn't happen, we can prove that. Well, Jesus is a liar, false prophet. He's not God. But thirdly, we had now no hope of resurrection ourselves. Like the entire concept of us being resurrected from the dead one day is based upon Jesus being the first of the resurrection of the dead. In John 11, verse 25, Jesus told the woman at the well, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. If Jesus is still dead, then that's an empty promise. Didn't even apply to himself. As one scholar noted, the resurrection is proof of Jesus' triumph over sin and death. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers. It's the basis of Christian hope. It's the miracle of all miracles. If Jesus didn't rise, we have no assurance of resurrection ourselves. Fourthly, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our Christian faith would be in utter vain. Don't take my words for it. Consider what the apostle Paul said about this very reality. 1 Corinthians 15, he said, if Christ is preached that he has been risen from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Because if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. So back to the question, why should we care about the resurrection? Because if it didn't happen, we have no faith. What we're doing is meaningless. It's ritualistic, it's traditional. There's no substance to it. This leads me to another question. Why then is it important that we examine the claim of the resurrection for ourselves? See, a lot of people, they understand that it's important, and so they just accept it. They don't ever really think about it until someone challenges them. And that is, I think, a tragedy on the part of pastors who don't address this enough, and Christians who just don't do enough due diligence in their own study. Understand that the, the reason we should study the claim of the resurrection is first, let's be honest, that the claim of resurrection is obviously radical. Without question, the most unbelievable assertion presented by any religion 
is the notion that after three days, dead in a tomb, Jesus was resurrected to life. This thesis, made by Christians, made by you and I, believed by us, is even further exacerbated by the reality that not a single person has ever in the history of planet Earth been resurrected before Jesus or since Jesus. Now, you might be scratching your head thinking, well, what about Lazarus? And what about some of the other examples? There is a difference between what's called revivification and resurrection. Revivification is the return of a dead man to a mortal life. Like, Lazarus is the saddest person ever. Like, he died, then was resurrected or revived to only have to do what again? <laughs> Die. Like, poor dude had to die twice. That stinks. Like, dying once is a bummer. Dying twice? I'd be really upset with Jesus. I'd finally get to heaven and be like, dude, why did, what? I was, were you trying to make a point? You see, to be revived is different to be resurrected because the definition of resurrection is the rising up of a dead man to not mortal life, but eternal life. And this we see only happening with Jesus. It should also be pointed out that the belief in the resurrection of Jesus is so outlandish, so extreme, that not a single other religion or moral leader has ever dared to make such a claim. Muhammad never claimed that after three days being dead, he would rise. Buddha didn't do the same. Joseph Smith, he was still digging for buried treasure, was not interested in it. Like, over and over and over again, we see that no one would dare make a claim like that, but Jesus did. So the claim of resurrection is obviously radical, which means we should study it. But secondly, skepticism in the resurrection is only reasonable. If the claim is obviously radical, initial skepticism is only reasonable. Understand that nowhere in scripture are believers commanded to check reason and logic at the door and simply believe a claim using the intelligent crutch known as blind faith. Heard the phrase, blind faith? Well, why do you believe that? Because the Bible tells me so. Well, why do you, be I, just, I just believe it blindly. I, I, you know, I can't see, so I'm gonna step out in blind faith. See, sadly, people have come to view faith as the tool which enables a person to believe something they might otherwise find to be intellectually unreasonable. I can't wrap my brain around it, so I'm gonna believe it in faith. Sadly, and ironically, the book of Hebrews provides a definition of faith that totally contradicts that notion. The author of Hebrews defines faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not clearly seen, that faith in and of itself is not blindness, it's substance, it's tangible. I can, I can grab hold of it and there's evidence to back it up before anyone, and this means you, believes a claim of scripture. And the resurrection is no exception. That person should first be able to conclude there is enough tangible evidence provided through reason to make faith and the veracity of that claim simply reasonable. Ravi Zacharias I love the way he says this. He says, what I believe in my heart must make sense in my mind. Understand, I think, I think skepticism gets a bad rap. Do you realize that skepticism is not wrong in and of itself? That it's not, it's not a sin for you to be skeptical of things. 
It's a sin for you to, to, to walk in unbelief, but not skepticism. Like as a matter of fact, skepticism can be the first natural step towards greater discovery. That often like the fact that we discover new things, that we have new ideas, that we invent new things, is that someone was initially skeptical and then did something about it. You see the key that makes skepticism right or wrong, healthy or hurtful, is what you do with your skepticism. Do I allow skepticism to be my excuse to remain ignorant of facts? Or do I allow skepticism to motivate me towards a genuine quest for the truth? It's interesting that even after telling these women that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, the angel, he doesn't tell them to believe it blindly. He doesn't send them on their merry way. When they're like, well, can we see? The angel's like, no, 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 you're not entering. No, the angel found it necessary to do what? To encourage a group of women to examine the evidence for themselves before they reach their own conclusion, claim, invitation, then go tell people. Do you realize that we are no exception? Thirdly, so it's an unbelievable claim. Skepticism is only reasonable. But thirdly, the implications of the resurrection are unavoidable. If disproving the resurrection means that Christianity is a farce and Jesus is nothing more than a false prophet and a liar, that's true then the flip side of it is also true. That Christianity, that proving the resurrection to be true, does what? It validates that Jesus is actually who he claimed to be, and it substantiates the rest of the message of Christianity. I mean, if Jesus did the impossible, if Jesus rose from the dead, if it's proved to be a falsehood, it totally discredits our faith. If it proves to be true, well, you can't run from that reality because he just did something no other human has ever done or ever will do. He did something to prove that he's God. In his book, The Reason for God, Belief in the Age of Skepticism, Timothy Keller wrote, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, <laughs> then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The implications of the resurrection are unavoidable. So we should look at the resurrection. We should examine it and study it because, well, it's a radical claim. And skepticism is, is, is only natural. It's only normal. The implications, if it's true, are radical, are unavoidable, are tangible. But fourthly, the evidence for the resurrection is electable, electable. As we'll see in the remaining verses of Mark, even Jesus's closest followers, his A-team, the apostles, the guys that started the church, Peter, Pope Peter, they were all skepticists, skeptics. They were all initially skeptical that Jesus had been resurrected. And yet, over and over and over again, Jesus responded to their skepticism by doing what? By providing inescapable evidence. 
You see, though the resurrection of Jesus might be the most radical claim of history, as we're going to see, it is also one of the more provable. The evidence for the resurrection is inescapable. Now, I want to start in examining the resurrection because it's important. I want to start with establishing the philosophical framework for the resurrection of Jesus. Like what you first have to wrap your brain around in order to progress forward. It's a truth that if there is a God, like if that's where we can start, okay, we're on the same page, there is a God, then we can concede that even the improbable is entirely possible. Let me think about it. If there was no God and, and the universe was constricted to natural laws, textbook naturalism, then indeed, there is no God and everything is constrained by the natural laws that govern the universe. Then you know what? I will agree that it would be impossible for anyone to rise from the dead. Because there's no God, there's no afterlife, nothing happens. As a matter of fact, enjoy the thought, you're dead and you're just dead. Fun. Like, I just cease to be. Encouraging. However, if you can concede, just intellectually, that there is a God, that a God does exist, and this God authored and controlled natural laws, well, then it would be possible that God would resurrect someone from the dead, even if it might initially be considered improbable. There's no God, resurrection is impossible. If there is a God who can interact in the world, well, then even what I might consider to be impossible now becomes probable because there's a force that exceeds everything else that can interact and intervene in any way he sees possible. You see, the simple idea that God has the ability to do something improbable logically establishes the framework whereby the entire examination of the resurrection of Jesus can be logically examined. Please at least concede this reality. With God, though improbable, the resurrection is not impossible. Philosophical theologian, I know that's a mouthful. His name is William Lane Craig. He said it this way. The hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead doesn't contradict science or any known facts of experience. All it requires is the hypothesis that God exists. And I think that there are good independent reasons for believing that he does. As long as the existence of God is even possible, it's possible that he acted in history by raising Jesus from the dead. So the philosophical framework, if you can agree that there's a God, then we have something to build off of. But now let's examine the evidence, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Now there are two points I wanna make right from the beginning, things that we need to establish up front. First, no one actually saw Jesus resurrect from the dead. Like, do you know that? It's kinda of like one of those Bible trivias that everybody gets wrong. No one saw Jesus rise from the dead. Like there was no one, there's no biblical account at all of anyone like hanging out in the tomb, chilling, hanging, doing their thing. And then all of a sudden they saw with their own two eyes and were an eyewitness of Jesus's body beginning to stir, rising. 
and then exiting the tomb. No one saw it. No one saw that happen. There's not a single person who claimed to have seen the resurrection of Jesus. As we mentioned last week, the stone, the stone was rolled away from the tomb, not to let Jesus out. It's not as though like Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he's like inside banging on the inside of the tomb. Someone let me out. Like I was resurrected from the dead, but now I'm trapped in this sucker forever. This is horrible. Like the stone was rolled back, not to let Jesus out. He was already gone, but to let us look in. Because this is the reality, the case for the resurrection of Jesus is largely established through the accumulation of what we call circumstantial evidence. Now, circumstantial evidence relies on an inference to connect it to a conclusion of fact. It's the nature of circumstantial evidence on its own. Circumstantial evidence for more than one explanation it remains entirely possible. If you just have one bit of circumstantial evidence, it's hard to prove anything, right? We understand that. Circumstantial evidence, it's an inference to a fact. It doesn't prove it. However, the way that circumstantial evidence works is the more and more accumulation of corroborating circumstantial evidence that one puts together, pointing to the reality of a fact, the greater The evidence is for the fact. Like if you've ever watched CSI, like you understand how this process works. The accumulation of several corroborating pieces of circumstantial evidence into a collection becomes more valid as proof of a fact, especially when the alternative explanations have been ruled out. Circumstantial evidence allows a tier of fact to deduce that a fact exists. No one saw Jesus rise from the dead. So all we have is circumstantial evidence and other theories. And yet when we begin to remove other theories because they're not logical, and we begin to look at the circumstantial evidence as all, the more you have pointing to the resurrection, the greater the evidence and the argument that can be made. I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. He said it this way. When you have eliminated the impossible, Whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. The second thing I want you to understand is that there is no debate. And you'll bump into morons that will try to debate this. There really isn't. There is no debate as a fact of history that something occurred following the crucifixion, death of Jesus in history. Like like no one debates that Jesus died on the cross and then something happened. Like, that's, that's a reality that we can all agree on. People that are like, I don't, Jesus never existed, was never a person, was never on. Like, okay, you're, have, you're, you're, don't even read. Like, I don't even understand where we are, like, fitting together here. Like, we're not even being honest. Like, no one will debate that Jesus existed and that Jesus died on a cross. And then no one will debate because, like, 2,000 years later, there's the church, that something happened afterwards. Like, that's where we can all agree. Now, the question is what happened. Last Sunday, we looked at the swoon theory, and we looked at the reality or the idea that Jesus, his body was stolen by the disciples. Neither of those two meet up with, like, the legal sniff test. They just don't make sense. And so you can remove those out of the way. And so you're left at that point with, like, the biblical claim. Like, what does the Bible say happened? Okay, we can all agree Jesus lived, he died, something happened. What does the Bible say? The Bible says Jesus was crucified, died on a cross, was buried in a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Several ladies, as we looked at in Mark, come to check out the tomb, finish the preparial of the body. Tomb's empty. The tomb's empty. 
Initially, they're unsure what happened. Verses we looked at this morning. An angel sent by God appears to them and states that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Then, according to the Bible, over the next 40 days, Jesus is seen alive in various settings at various times by over 500 people before he ascends to heaven. Following his ascension, his followers go into the city of Jerusalem, begin to boldly preach the resurrection of Jesus. The church is born. Since then, several billion people throughout history have made the claim to have personally encountered the resurrected Jesus. So that's a biblical claim. Jesus died, something happened. This is what the Bible says took place. There aren't any other explanations. So you have to look at the biblical claim. Is it valid? Is it substantiated? Or is it moronic? First, we know as a bit of circumstantial evidence that the body of Jesus was missing, also not a debated fact of history, and that the site of the tomb was universally known. We, we dug into that last Sunday, but I'll just read you the quote that we, we referenced last week from William Lane Craig. He said, if the tomb weren't empty, it would be impossible for a movement founded on the belief in the resurrection to have come into existence in the same city where the man had been publicly executed and buried. Not only did Jesus' followers claim that the tomb that they discovered was empty, but even Jesus' most, most hardened critics and enemies didn't dispute the fact. As a simple and substantiated fact of history, the body of Jesus has never been discovered. So what happened? Secondly, second bit of circumstantial evidence is that the historical account of the events themselves was provided by eyewitnesses. Matthew and John were both there. They're gospels, like they're writing from an eyewitness perspective. Mark, as we've mentioned before, is actually dictating. He's, he's writing down the account of the events from another eyewitness, that being the apostle Peter. Luke, though wasn't there, he recorded his entire gospel through a collection of also using eyewitness testimonies. So the, the account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of the event has been provided not by like disciples of these people, not by like distant followers of these people. Like we have manuscriptal evidence to point to the reality that they wrote these accounts. Like they were eyewitnesses and they wrote down what they saw, what they experienced. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul quotes an early Christian creed that dates back to within a year of the events themselves, showing that whether you accept it or not, the resurrection of Jesus as a concept, as a belief, was a foundational claim of the first Christians and did not develop by oral legend. You study 1 Corinthians 15 and that particular creed, you'll find incredible evidence that points uh, it all the way back to the first century Christians. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus. Thirdly, contemporary historians corroborate the gospel claim. And this is kind of an, an unspoken or, or unexamined reality. Like you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you're like, oh, they're biased. They're part of the conspiracy. But you have other historians dating back to within 20 years of Jesus's crucifixion and, and, and quote unquote resurrection that corroborate the claim. Josephus, Tacticus, Lucian, Marabar Serapion, 
Sounds like it should be a character from Game of Thrones. Even the Jewish Talmud all affirm that the followers of Jesus believed in the resurrection. So thirdly, contemporary historians corroborate the gospel claim. Fourthly, a contradictory account was never provided by contemporaries. Like, think about it for a moment. When the gospels were written, critics of the claim could have easily written a rebuttal that aimed to refute or to correct the resurrection claim. And yet, no such writings exist. Like, no one would dare in the first century write a claim discrediting the evidence that had been presented for the resurrection. You either accept it or you reject it. Fifthly, there were over 500 eyewitnesses who encountered, who claimed to encounter a resurrected Jesus. Now, that's, that's pretty substantive, right? I mean, I, I mean that's, that's a lot of eyewitnesses. Like, in a court of law today, if you had that many people that you're bringing before, it's, yeah, maybe you can discredit a couple of them, but over 500, that's very difficult to do. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 8, the Apostle Paul said, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I had received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to Scriptures. This is that, that creed I mentioned, and that he then appeared to Cephas, who's Peter. Then he, he appeared to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, although some have fallen asleep, which means that they had died. Then Jesus appeared to James, who was his brother. Then to the, all the apostles, and last of all, as to one ultimately born, he also appeared to me. So the apostle Paul, he's addressing in this chapter the, the resurrection, people questioning it as you get to the second generation of Christians. And he's like, if you want to dispute it, hey, let me give you a list of eyewitnesses. Just go find them. Go talk to them. Get their firsthand account of encountering the resurrected Jesus. It's been said the issue with Jesus isn't that he was nowhere to be seen. It's that he was seen alive, he was seen dead, and he was seen alive once more. Christian philosopher Gary Habermas said it this way. Here's how I look at the evidence for the resurrection. First, did Jesus die on a cross? Second, did he later appear to people? You can establish those two things, you've made your case, because dead people don't normally do that. I agree. Now, because of the strength of circumstantial evidence, especially the evidence of so many eyewitnesses, there have been some to have developed this idea that somehow in their grief and in their anguish, this group of people actually collectively experienced a hallucination. They were dipping into the shrooms a little too much, and pow! They're like, Jesus, we see him. Now Jesus isn't there. But they basically had this group hallucination, and that, that accounts for why so many people saw Jesus. They were users. Now, the problem with the theory of a mass hallucination is at first, the psychological makeup of the disciples is not even conducive to a hallucination. Hallucinations happen to people. Hallucinations based on grief and anguish. They happen to people who are high-strung, imaginative, nervous. 
a fertile mind of expectancy or anticipation for some coming event is required. And yet following the crucifixion, the disciples, are they expectant? Not at all. They're fearful, they're doubtful, they're in despair. They're not expecting to see the resurrected Jesus. Even when people would come and say that they had, they were skeptical. So first, the psychological makeup of the disciples doesn't make sense for a hallucination. Secondly, I'm not speaking from personal experience, but just from what I've read, that hallucinations are always linked to an individual's subconsciousness, like past experiences, the brain conjuring up thoughts you've already thought, that, that hallucinations don't happen because they're linked to an individual subconscious, like to a group of people. Like if we're all partying and we're all taking some drugs and we're all hallucinating, we're tripping out, that because the hallucination's based into your subconscious, that it's impossible for other people to have the same hallucination. Like you can't have the same, like the idea of a group hallucination is impossible. No one's invented a good enough drug to create that kind of a reaction. Not to mention that hallucinations don't typically last for 40 days. I mean, that would be one James Franco-like trip, seriously. Sixth, the transformation of the disciples is unexplainable. If the resurrection didn't occur, then you have to figure out a different way to explain how the disciples transform from being pitiful cowards to being bold proclaimers in a matter of a few days. Anglican cleric John R.W. Stott, he said perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. Don't forget the disciples. They didn't expect Jesus to face crucifixion They then didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead after three days. In line with current Jewish thought about the Messiah, they had come to Jerusalem thinking that Jesus was going to lead a revolution, overthrow the Romans, and deliver the kingdom of God to the nation of Israel. When Jesus was crucified, it was an embarrassment to their faith, which is why they ran. It's why they went into hiding. It's why they abandoned the faith, became skeptics and doubters even before Jesus was crucified. We see them acting like skeptics and doubters. Don't forget Peter on three occasions, denied even knowing Jesus. Jewish historian and theologian, Pinkas Lapid, he said this, if the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception, without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection. I think he's onto something. So the transformation of the disciples is only explainable with the reality that they encountered a resurrected Jesus who transformed them from being pitiful cowards to being bold proclaimers. Encountering someone who had been dead will do that. Seventh, the emergence and rapid spread of Christianity is incredible. Like you also have to explain that. Something radical, something revolutionary had to have taken place following Jesus's crucifixion for the following things to take place. First, thousands of skeptics, 50 days later, instantly mass convert. They're chanting 50 days earlier, crucify him, and then they convert. Like 
The disciples were preaching to people who had rejected Jesus. In what words could they now communicate to this group of people to convince them that Jesus really did rise from the dead if it weren't for the fact that the, eviden that the evidence for those who were there was overwhelming? They didn't dispute it. They accepted it. So thousands of skeptics immediately mass convert. Secondly, even the most hardened cynics, we see experience radical, radical conversions. James, Jesus' half-brother, over and over and over again in the gospel narrative, he is a total skeptic of Jesus, his big brother. Doesn't believe in him, doesn't accept him. As a matter of fact, wants him to shut up and come home, thinks he's a looney tune. Jesus dies on the cross, of which, by the way, his brother didn't even show up for. Like, whatever, man. Wants nothing to do with Jesus. And then out of nowhere, that man begins leading the church of Jerusalem. That they called him camel knees because of the calluses that developed on his knees for the amount of time he spent in prayer. He spent his life thinking that Jesus was a fraud. And something happened to convince him that every opportunity he could get, he was on his knees chilling with his brother. What happened? Well, we're told in Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared specifically to James. Awkward. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that conversation had to have been awkward. Like, ta-da, told you. Don't you feel like an idiot? And James is like, I mean, what do you say? You see, James is a hardened cynic. He becomes the first to die for his faith, you know, of this core group of people. Legend says he was beheaded. Saul, who was the chief prosecutor of Christians, also known as the Apostle Paul, he converted after claiming what? an experience, an encounter with the risen Jesus. Even the, the Bible tells us many of the scribes that were there also converted, who were part of the group that sentenced him to be crucified, ended up also converting. You also have to explain the fundamental Jewish religious structures that were abandoned by Jewish followers after 50 days. You know, for thousands of years, the Jewish people had maintained their individualism by holding fast to various key religious traditions. They did this because they believed these institutions were entrusted to them by God, and if they didn't, then they would damn themselves to hell. And yet, five weeks later, five weeks after Jesus' crucifixion, we see that over 10,000 devout Jews willingly give up and abandon, they alter all five key religious institutions they had been taught from childhood. You don't do that. Especially in the South, we know how tradition works. It's hard to break from something or some idea or some way that you were raised. 50 days later, these Jews abandoned everything that they held to their own identity. They stopped offering animal sacrifices to atone for sin. They abandoned the adherence to the Mosaic law. They changed their worship. From Saturday to Sunday, they transitioned from monotheism to a Trinitarian view of God. They adopted an entirely different view of the mission of the Messiah. They abandoned so much. Something had to have happened to cause that, not to mention 20 years after the fact, Christianity dominated a pagan polyistic Roman empire. Shortly after Jesus' death, Christianity just didn't spread. 
it spread and it triumphed over competing ideologies to the point that after two decades, what took place in a small province in Judea had found itself even influencing the palace of Caesar. I heard it said that Christianity's lasting impact was so successful that today we name our children Peter and Paul, and we name our dogs Caesar and Nero. Let's recap. The circumstantial evidence. First, the body of Jesus was missing. The site of the tomb was known. Secondly, the historical account was provided by eyewitnesses. Thirdly, contemporary historians corroborated the gospel claim. Fourth, contradictory accounts never provided. Fifth, 500 eyewitnesses claim to encounter a resurrected Jesus. Sixth, the transformation of the disciples is unexplainable apart from the resurrection. Seventhly, with thousands of skeptics mass converting, hardened cynics experiencing radical conversions, fundamental Jewish religious structures being abandoned, Christianity then dominating a pagan polyistic Rome. Well, the emergence and rapid spread of Christianity validates that a supernatural occurrence occurred. It's been said that with these three facts, the resurrection appearances, the empty tomb, and the origin of the Christian faith all point to one unavoidable conclusion, the resurrection of Jesus. Today, the rational man can hardly be blamed if he believes that on that first Easter morning, a divine miracle occurred. But finally, there's one more bit of evidence that trumps it all, that I find to be the most compelling It's the reality that your life has been transformed through an encounter with a resurrected Jesus. Like, do you realize that your testimony is a powerful uh, demonstration, it's powerful evidence to a resurrected Jesus? That the fact that your life has been transformed from a life of sin to a life uh, of salvation and redemption, of justification through grace? Like, you can only explain the transformation that many of us encountered by saying it was supernatural, that there was a supernatural moment where we encountered like the apostle Paul and like so many before us, Jesus. And we could no longer run and we had to accept him and then we follow him, that we follow Jesus. Not a myth, not a legend, not an oral tradition, not a ghost, that we follow a man who lived his name being Jesus. And we follow him no matter where he goes, we get our marching orders from him that we're going into the world as ambassadors of him because we know him. Now, I'll tell you, if you have a conversation with someone that doubts, is really struggling about the resurrection, it's a real skeptic on it, don't belittle their skepticism. Accept it. Find it reasonable. Challenge them to examine the evidence. Present evidence. But then when it's all said and done, you know the one thing you can't argue with? is your experience. I mean, over and over and over, I've had conversations with people that don't believe in the resurrection. And I get to a point after running through evidence, I'm like, listen, man, when it's all said and done, I'll convince you if you allow me to introduce you. Go back to the passage that we read. There was the claim, Jesus has risen. There was the invitation, go and see. And then what? Why? Because Jesus wanted the women to go and to tell the disciples what they knew. For what reason? Jesus 
wanted to meet them. Why are you sent in the world with the news of the resurrection? Because Jesus desires to meet those that are lost. Your testimony, your encounter with Jesus, your transformation, that is the most powerful evidence of all. I think we could include, uh, agree that the Apostle Paul is probably second to Jesus, the most influential thinker ever. He was a smart man. He, he had his theology buttoned down, right? That the Apostle Paul could argue with anyone that could reasonably present theological concepts eloquently, like in order. He knew what he was doing, right? But over and over and over again in the book of Acts, as we'll see, when given the opportunity to encounter the lost, to discuss Jesus, you know what the Apostle Paul used? When he could have addressed any theological concept he wanted to, and he could argue with the best of them, then almost inevitably he always returned back to his testimony. Hey, man. I hated Jesus. I hated Christianity. I hated these people. I was on the way to Damascus to kill them, to throw them into prison. And on the way, I got knocked on my tush and blinded. And I heard Saul, Saul. And I recognized the voice. And my life changed forever because of that interaction. Your testimony is the most powerful thing you have. Or maybe not. Because possibly there are some of you this morning that don't have a testimony. Hey, don't check your brain at the door. Look at the resurrection for yourself, logically. Look at the evidence. Look at the competing, th like reach your own conclusion. But when it's all said and done, if you want to be convinced, you can be introduced to him this morning. That you can get on your knees and you can stop running and you can say, Jesus, reveal yourself. I need to know you're real. And I promise you that if you do that, Jesus will meet you right where you are. He will reveal himself in a real and tangible way. And I believe that not just because my brain is convinced, because my heart has experienced that reality. And I hope the same is true for you. So Father, with that thought, we leave it there.